invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Genesis chapter 2. We had a great, uh, whoops, marriage conference uh, this weekend, and um, I know many of you were able to be there, others not, and, but uh, we had a great time, and I want to continue talking about the topic of marriage this morning in a sermon titled, What is Marriage For? going to be primarily in Genesis, uh, the latter part of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, um, but we're going to move around a little bit as well. Well, we learned many things at the marriage conference this weekend. One of the things I learned was not surprising to me in the least, and that was that Pastor Nate and Janelle's first kiss was in a hog barn. In fact, I could have probably predicted that. As weird as that sounds. Well, I'm going to begin our time together by reading from the beginning of the Bible here, but then also the end of the Bible. So we're going to start out with Genesis 2, 23 and 24, and then we're going to look at, we're going to read to begin our time together in Genesis 19, verses 6 and 7. I'll invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And now toward the end of our Bible in Genesis, I mean in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach us today. Transform us today. Tether our hearts and minds to the gospel in a more tight way today. For those here this morning who are apart from Christ or don't know where they stand in relation to Christ. May the beauty of the Gospel, by the work of the Spirit, bring them to faith in Christ this morning. And may all of us gaze with wonder that people like us can be referred to as the Bride of Christ. O oh Lord, Give us understanding for your glory, the good of others, and the good of our soul. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. You know, the, the most important things ever said in the world about marriage were by single people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But it's absolutely true. 
Jesus was never married, but the Bible portrays Jesus as fascinated by marriage. He's the creator of all things, so this imagery related to marriage that permeates the Bible is from Christ. His ministry was explained in this marriage imagery. He came and He was the groom and He was purchasing a bride for Himself. He he is leading His people toward a marriage supper. You heard us read that in uh, Genesis 19. All of this is headed somewhere as the groom prepares His bride and ultimately there's a celebratory marriage supper of the Lamb in the consummated kingdom. When he begins teaching the the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of his ministry, marriage is one of the topics. He uses marriage uh, uh, to uh, unfaithfulness in marriage to point out the reality of sin in a heart and the need to repent and worship. He teaches parables about things like weddings and wedding guests and uses the imagery of marriage. His Judean ministry, he brings up marriage. In Jerusalem, as he nears the cross, there is more teaching about marriage. Jesus was fascinated by marriage. Jesus was committed to teaching all of his followers about marriage. But beyond Jesus, we see the Apostle Paul, another single man. And one of the things he teaches us about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 is that not everyone marries. And for the one who doesn't marry, they are to use that time and the freedom that they have in that way to serve Christ, and, and that can be a good thing. But he also teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5, he clarifies what the whole Bible has been saying from the very beginning, and he emphatically says that all of this, that this issue of marriage from the very beginning is really about Christ and the church. The Ephesians 5 is not about marriage in the terms of human marriage. It's about Christ and the church. And there's an example of that, an expression of that, a tangible reality in the world that people see, and that is human marriage. And when done right, the gospel is at the center. And husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to their husbands and respect them to the glory of Christ. You see, Paul's teaching clarifies for us, even one, for instance, who is a lifelong single person cannot disregard and should not disregard thinking deeply about marriage. Why? Because every believer is a part of a marriage. The single person who is in Christ is a part of the bride of Christ, headed toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible begins with a wedding in the very beginning. A man shall leave father and mother and cling to his wife. It heads ultimately to a celebration of a wedding. And in between, we are being prepared for that, all of us who are in Christ. You see, no one said as Paul taught about marriage or as Jesus taught about marriage, why are you talking about marriage? You're a single person. How could you know anything about marriage? What could you possibly know to teach me? Or why would you as a single person even care about marriage? As a single person, what we need to know about is issues related to ourselves. Well, why does our culture say things 
like that. I taught at a conference one time. I was invited to speak, and the conference was on uh, marriage and family. And so I'm talking about uh, parenting, and somebody comes up to me after the conference and says, you know, that, that talk had absolutely nothing for me. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I don't have kids and I'm not married. What about me? Okay. You are a kid. Do you have a mother and father? Well, yeah. Huh. Do you go to a church where there are mothers and fathers and kids? What do you mean it doesn't have anything to do with you? You see what he's doing. He's viewing the world from the lens of what he sees in the mirror. And what matters is what he thinks directly pertains to him. It's a terrible problem that we have today. And that is we think about our world and our lives in it in a very self-referential way. In a way that says this, what matters to me is my situation. In other words, what matters to me is me. Now, it's a failure to understand what really matters anyway, but at its root, it's very problematic. The world can't even work like that, much less the church. If you ask most cultures in the history of the world, what is the purpose of your life? Most of the cultures in the history of the world, no matter what they believed about anything else, would say, well, I am here to serve my people. I am here to serve my community. My life, the purpose of my life is to make the world around me a better place. In other words, my purpose is to serve those outside of me. Most of the time today when that question is asked, People answer, the purpose of my life is to be fulfilled and happy. And what they mean by that when you get behind it is not serving those out there. It's what others can do to make them fulfilled and happy. In other words, it's not a service mandate, the purpose of my life. It's a job description for other people. And by the way, when we project that out far enough, it's a job description for God. I will be happy if I get this, if I achieve this. I will be fulfilled if others do this for me. You see this, but what about me culture is very dangerous. Uh, I've seen it again and again, you you, you, you talk about parenting. Somebody who doesn't have kids says, but what about me? You, you talk about uh, singleness. Somebody's married says, but what about me? You talk about marriage. Somebody who's single says, but what about me? Well, the Bible would ask us to consider, what about you? How are you to see yourself? As an isolated individual that everything twirls around? Or maybe there's more than that. Because that is a path of bondage. Maybe you're to see yourself first and foremost in your relationship to God. 
And secondly, in your relationship to your church community and the larger world that you live in. Perhaps we are to consider our lives in light of something bigger than us. You see, most of our thoughts about marriage begin with us. And that's the reason why, rightly, a lot of people who aren't married look at the way we talk about marriage and think we're just having an internal conversation and it doesn't have anything to do with them. Because we start with trying to figure out how to survive, how to make it. Just, just sort of, okay, give me tips on what it means to be a married person. And of course, being married is not less than that, but it's always more. And if we miss the more... The tips aren't actually very helpful at all. So what is marriage for? The first thing I want you to see is it's for cosmic glory. Cosmic glory. In other words, that, that, which, that, that which we point to the cosmos, the, the glory of the cosmos. In other words, it has to do with God, the creator of the cosmos. Our creator. It has to do with Him. It has to do with making much of Him. First and foremost, it's not just about us, it's about cosmic glory. In Genesis 1, the king of the cosmos creates, and he creates by the word of his power. It's amazing. He speaks, and there it is. And he creates the world, and then the creation work goes into filling the world, creating what is not there, uh, out of nothing, and then filling the world. And all of it builds toward his crowning creation. The, the crowning creation is, is not a majestic uh, mountaintop. It's, it's not the sky. It's not the, the, the fish in the sea. It is His image bearers. Look at 126. Now, there are a lot of cues that, in, in this text that point out that, that it, is, it is setting this part of God's creation over to the side to say, this This is what is most important about creation. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. The the us and man automatically destabilizes the person at this time looking at this. This is pointing to something besides God as as just simply a, a, a being... We, we see points that the New Testament fills in for us. This points us to the Trinity. God is community. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. The, 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 the word image here is, means something cut from something. The idea here is to think of an image as a statue, or, or we think of an image as a picture. Uh, an image is what it represents, and it's not what it represents. If you were in my house, and we were to walk over to a picture, let's say of, of Judy, and you said, pointed to it and said, is that Judy? I might say what? Yes. You say, well, did you marry that? Do you mean the picture? No. That, that's not really Judy. It's not actually Judy, it's a representation of Judy. So it is and it isn't Judy. We are God's image bearers. Uh, the, the starting point for us understanding that is we are not God. But we are to represent God, to, 
image God, to reflect God in the world. And in fact, the Bible tells us that we alone can do that. No other part of the created order can image God. But it fills in, as we move through, something really important about what it means to image God in the world. Something that that somewhat surprises us. So as image bearers, we have a responsibility. So, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Another way to talk about image, meaning that this is an adequate representation of God. And let them, that is man, notice the plural, what will become humanity, have dominion. The word means rule. Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So as God's unique representatives, His image bearers who reflect Him in the world, we are over the rest of the created order, and we are to rule the created order under the authority of the One who is the ruler and creator of all God. So we have a responsibility here with the created order. But notice what it says in verse 27. So God created, and by the way, all these createds are the Hebrew bara, which is only something God can do. It's never used for man. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. You see, when we get to that point, we see something about what it means to image God in the world. Male and female, we are sexed beings. We are either of the male sex or we are of the female sex. And that's going to be important because one of our chief responsibilities we're going to talk about in a minute, and it is only able to, for us to do it because we complement one another and we are not the same. The complementary relationship allows us to obey God in the mandate that He's given us to rule the world under His authority, but we are to do it as male and female. We are to embrace our identity as male or female. And it also means this. If there were just males, God would not be properly imaged in the world. If there were just females, God would not be properly imaged in the world. And that's why any backing off of the reality of male and female is a theological error. It's to confuse the world about God. It's to lie to the world about God. No matter all of the chaos regarding these things that ring around in our culture, This must be a place where we unapologetically say that the king of the cosmos who created the world and uniquely created man in his own image demands to be imaged by people who embrace the reality that they are male or female. See, this imaging role involves knowledge, righteousness, holiness, Only humanity, only men and women, God's image bearers, can have this knowledge of God in this way, who can order their lives in a way of righteousness and a set-apartness for God. 
That separates us from all the rest of the created order. And our responsibility of dominion on the king's behalf is a task that he's called us to. And notice what he says in verse 31 after he talks about these things. And he says, and it was very good. The rest of the created order, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And now it is very good. He's making an exclamation mark here on the fact that this is the crowning point of the created order. This is what God is doing to bring Himself glory in this world. These sexed image bearers, male and female, are not the same, but they are equal. They complement one another, and together they can do what God would have us to do in the responsibility He's given us in the world. You know what the very first not good in the Bible is? Genesis 2.18. In fact, it unsettles you if you just sort of read it and you're getting in the rhythm of what's being said. There's no fall in the sin yet, so how is there a not good? In fact, the, the whole telling of the story is, it's good, this is what God is doing. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden, there's a not good. Genesis 2.18 It is not good that man should be alone. Loneliness is the very first not good in the Bible. There's all kinds of aspects to loneliness. But God has not created us to be alone. And one of the primary ways we are to reject Loneliness is through the incredible gift of marriage. We are not to be alone. We are to do the task that God has called us to do. Look down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. We see how he applies all this. Beginning in verse 21, he says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, by the way, man had already had the animals brought to him and he had named them. But when God brings a woman to man, a helper fit for him, we don't get just simply naming, we get poetry. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman or Isha because she was taken out of man, Ish. You see, there's a play on words there that actually comes across really well in woman and man. If we were to take what the Bible is saying about this issue, we see the complementary relationship. Let me summarize 2 Corinthians eleven eight 8, and 9, and the case Paul makes there. He says, man is made from the earth, woman is made from man. Man is brought to the earth, woman is brought to man. God is char- man is charged to work the earth with primary responsibility, and woman is charged to help man work the earth, the dominion mandate. 
There's this complementary relationship. And then we get this in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to cling to. An inseparable bond is the, the word here. Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, when you hear that language, one flesh, there's something about that that you can't totally explain. The mystery of marriage. That's because it is cosmic. It is what God is doing. Certainly it involves one flesh emotionally, physically, spiritually. But there's something about that. Two people come together and never again are they to consider themselves as a separate entity from the one that they become one flesh with. Notice this is what God created. This is what God is doing. Notice that God says this has to happen for dominion to be taken in the world. To rule the world under my authority. For my work to be done. My cosmic work. My ultimate work. And we would say... The gospel work demands the reality that we see here of getting it done. It's not the only way, but it is a primary way and a normative way. Because it's not just simply a way that we come together. It's a way that God works in the world. Notice how intimately God says He is involved in marriage. Let me first of all give you a passage from the prophets, then a passage from the epistles, Paul, and then we'll, I'll remind you of what we read earlier in Revelation. First of all, the prophet Malachi. Malachi two fourteen and 15 says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now the covenant there is, is, is being marked out as before God. God was a witness to that covenant. When you come at a wedding ceremony, the people there are witnesses, but the primary witness is God. God says He is involved, that the covenant is a covenant in His sight. Then verse 15 says, Did He not make them one? Notice this. With a portion of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now think about this. Marriage is a picture between Christ and the church. This passage says that this covenant is a covenant in the sight of God. God the Father. And it says that the Holy Spirit Himself is present in the union. Marriage is cosmic. It's about God. And it's about glorifying God. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5, 31-33. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. You notice how that phrase, that imagery, that one fleshness, that leave and cleave shows up over and over again in the Bible. This mystery is profound, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 32. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's about Christ and the church. Cosmic glory. It's about the gospel. It's about 
God. It's about a covenant in His sight. And it is all heading to the cosmic reality of the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. See, we're right to gather at weddings and and make these covenants in the sight of God and to celebrate because all of the celebration is participatory or anticipatory toward this glorious reality where all of this is headed as the bride is gathered, as, as God consummates His kingdom. Now, let's pull some of this together. Marriage is the first and foremost. It is a theological issue. What's at stake is the cosmic glory of God. That's first of all. And that's really important to constantly remember. Because when people tend to have marriage problems, and they don't think about God, then there's no way for it not to be a tug of war. If God is involved, something bigger can be happening. And there can be something noble about me even loving a person who's not very lovable. Which has to be true in every marriage at times. None of us are always lovable. And none of us can say, I deserve to be loved. So marriage is a gift in your life where you're loved anyway. I want you to hear from another single person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a teacher who, part of what was called the confessing church that stood up to Adolf Hitler and ultimately he was hanged for it. Here's what this single person wrote about marriage. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power. For it is God's holy ordinance through which He wills to perpetuate the human race to the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and pass away to His glory and calls into His kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is not your own private possession. But marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office, just as it is the crown. And not merely of the will to you together in the sight of God and a man, and man, as you first gave the ring to one another and have now received it a second time from the hand of the pastor, So love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promises of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on it is to be the marriage that sustains your love. 
Elizabeth Elliot said something very similar when she said, you decide to get married because you love one another, and then you commit to love one another because you're married. That's the way it works for a Christian. You see, in pointing to the cosmic glory of marriage, Bonhoeffer also prepared us for the next thing that we see so very clearly and something that's almost never talked about today. That marriage is not only about cosmic glory, it's also about communal flourishing. Flourishing in the community. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and God said to them, now notice the distinction here. God spoke about all of the other aspects of the created order. To His image bearers, God spoke to them. Good, very good. About spoke to. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. And then he goes on to talk about the the plant world and how he's given that for food. And then he goes on to say it was very good. But notice here, there's there's a mission given here. There's a responsibility. The first of all is to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to to have children, to raise them in the context of a family relationship, to point them to the fear and admonition of the Lord so there is a responsibility for people to want to be fruitful and multiply. Now, like all other things in a fallen world, that doesn't always happen. And it doesn't always happen on our timetable. We trust God. We look to the the will of God and the, the purpose of God. And God teaches us even when our desires are not, are thwarted. Often, most when our desires are thwarted. But we are to desire to be fruitful and multiply because we are a part of filling the earth. Notice that what's going on here in marriage is producing a community, a civilization. Not just simply an an isolated issue for a couple of people. And that's why the, the world has to be subdued. It has to be ruled under the authority of God and things have to be taken dominion over meaning for the good of the whole, the public good, the the good of the community. So if you're going to do this and the community starts to grow, there are going to have to be bridges and storehouses and home and shelter and food and clothing. The institution of marriage, this first institution ordained by God, provides the stability in a culture for those things to happen. Without marriage, there would not be the stability in a culture for those things to happen effectively. You see, this is the work of generations upon generations. The work of building a people. We experience that people in Christianity in the context of the church where we are all family and we love one another. But our church family goes as Christian families and we are to be a gift to our community. Uh, The world is to be a better place because there are Christians there. There is stability and there is service and there is help for the poor because Christians are there. When we look at the world and we're to rule it under the authority of God, we can't look out and say, the only image bearers that matter to me is me and mine. That's not the vision He's given us. That's not taking dominion 
over the entire created order the way we're called to, and ultimately we fulfill today in the Great Commission. Right? There's no room here for myopic uh, thinking. This is not a command just simply to take care of you and your own or your own personal survival. But these are cultural commands with reference to the entire created order. We are to care about our community. We're to care about our culture. We're to care about civilization, not just ourselves. See, chapter 2 begins with this God resting in this gift that God gives of this one in seven worship. So if people who are to do this effectively are going to be a worshiping people, but also marriage is this foundational institution to the created order. It's just simply true. The survival of any culture is tied to the survival of marriage. And when I say marriage, I don't mean a fill-in-the-blank definition. Marriage, biblically, is complementary. It's male and female. It involves the uh, male and female coming together and having sexual intercourse and the desire for children. But it is not only complementary, it's also to be permanent. So there's to be a commitment of one to another. And, And it's also exclusive. There are... It forbids polygamy and and many spouses. And so these ideas of complementary, producing offspring, permanent and exclusive are what give society stability. You go anywhere in the world where marriage is mocked or ridiculed, you're going to have rampant homelessness. You're going to have kids on the street, orphans everywhere. And you're going to have terrible poverty. The foundational institution that God has given for stability in a culture cannot be rejected without consequence. And that's a sober word for us in our community, our culture, which is so confused about these matters. See, that's when we read the the words in um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, this call to work. Don't hear that as just working to put food on your table, but but this call to work is is for the good of the community as a whole. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Then the Lord God took the man and He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That is, to cultivate it and to care for it. And then if we skip down to uh, verse... uh, Well, I read verse 15 first. Verse 8 says this, The Lord planted a garden in Eden, place of delight, garden kingdom, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. We see in verse 15, he put him there to work it, that is to cultivate it and to keep it or to care for it. And that work that's being done there is for the good, not only of his wife and his children, but it is be the view of serving the community, taking dominion so the community flourishes. Let me just say it really directly. No matter how much we try to convince ourselves today that marriage is just simply a private matter for my own personal self-fulfillment, it shouldn't matter to anybody else what I do, and everybody else ought to mind their own business, is just simply not true. Marriage is a public matter after it is first and foremost, importantly, a God matter. 
That's why the government has almost always been involved in regulating marriage, because it involves people and property. And where the government does not regulate marriage, men treat women terribly, because they are not held accountable for the people that they, the, 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 the children that they um, have to be born and the wife that they supposedly committed to care for. You see, marriage is not merely a private matter between individuals and nobody else's business. You, 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 uh, one person has said it like this, marriage is the original and best department of health, education, and welfare. There's no better way for to have a stable community and a stable culture. And by the way, let me just say, this is why things like same-sex marriage being legalized matter. People say, well, How's it going to affect you and your marriage that, that we get married? And uh, No, no, that's not the way the world works. Same-sex marriage is not about expanding marriage to more people. It's about rejecting the definition of marriage. The dissolution of marriage is bad for all of us, no matter what your background. And by the way, we know God's design, and so we know that the fulfillment that someone is seeking in that sort of relationship will not be what they find. And so we love our neighbor to solemnize legally and governmentally unions that are not genuinely marriage does no one any good. And out of love for neighbor, we have to tell the truth. This is not about us speaking to these issues. It's about the fact that we understand that marriage has a communal good and for communities to flourish, and we care about our community. Marriage has to be embraced according to God's design. And it's one thing to say, yeah, but you know, all kinds of people are married, and they violate their marriage covenant. And, no, there's one thing to, to embrace the idea of marriage and to violate the covenant. That's sin. It's terrible. It's wrong. It's another thing to reject the definition of marriage. Without a complementary permanent and exclusive commitment, at least in principle, you don't have marriage. And we are not those people who say we lock our doors and we don't care what anybody else does or happens to them. We do not have that right. That is not the mandate God has given us. We are to love our neighbor. Finally, the only way the communal flourishing and the cosmic glory is going to happen is through this, sanctifying companionship. Now, notice that, that that word sanctifying is an important qualifier because most people today, when they answer questions about what marriage is to do for them, they would see it as self-fulfilling companionship. In fact, people say like this, I want to get married to someone who will accept me just the way I am and be for me what I need them to be. In other words, they're not going to change anything about me, but they're going to change everything about themselves to serve me. Uh, what if both parties think like that? It doesn't work. You see, the problem a lot of times in our culture is not that we have too low of a view of marriage, but there's too high a view of marriage. It's almost deified. Marriage is going to make me happy. Marriage is going to make me content. Marriage is going to take away my problems. No, no, no. Marriage is not God. There's a soberness about the reality of marriage. It is a gift from God. But it is not there for our self-fulfillment, even though it is often very fulfilling on the back end. It is there for our sanctification. It's a different project. Look with me beginning in verse 18. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a, a partner, a companion, a complement. Um, that's God's answer to the not good that man is alone. Now out of the ground uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Then the man gave to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament, we see that quoted in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, Mark chapter 10, verse 8, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Ephesians 5, 31. This one flesh companionship to march out on this mission that God has given us. But we see in Genesis 3, sin. And sin comes in the world through this first couple. And with sin comes problems. And with the work of the gospel, there is the redemption of everything in the created order, starting with image bearers, but also a redemption of all of the institutions in the world. So marriage has to be redeemed in a fallen world. And Ephesians 5 points to the complementary relationship of the way marriage does that by reflecting the gospel. And so the love of marriage is to be self-sacrificial, you aren't focused on yourself, you're focused on serving to the point of willing self-sacrifice. And the focus on marriage is, is not about getting your own way, it's about respect and submission and this complementary love to the point of self-sacrifice and respect that is willing to voluntarily rank yourself under the leadership of another is the way this is worked out in the world, but that's not easy. I tell couples when I'm doing premarital counseling, you've always thought about yourself here. Uh, I do what I want to do. I eat what I want to do. I, and all of a sudden, one day you say, I do, and you're never supposed to think like that again. That's hard. It's supposed to be. That's the way it is. Redeeming things in a fallen world is always hard. Think, think about this. As you live this out, you're trying to bring cosmic glory to the one who gave you this gift of marriage. And you're also serving your church, neighborhood, city, state, and the world by reflecting the gospel. And you and your marriage are becoming something new. God brings this person into your life to bring change in your life. And you together think about it like this. Y'all are a new creation that God is making. You married a sinner. And your spouse married a sinner. And you're going to have the difficulties that sinners have. But when those difficulties are brought to the gospel and self-sacrifice and, and, and forgiveness is at the heart of what you do, you're reclaiming this institution for the cosmic glory of God. And you're not only helping within your own walls, though you are that, you're giving your children the greatest gift you could give them. A marriage is a reflection of the gospel which preaches to them, but you're also giving a gift to the world. But here's the secret. 
you change one another for the good by loving God and by loving one another, not by trying to change the other. If you have a mission, you know, like you've got a laboratory here. This is what he needs to be. This is what she needs to be. Okay, here's what I'm going to create. If your goal is to change the other, it's going to be very unhealthy. Because what's at the center of your desires when you're doing that is you. How can I build this person I need them to be for me? If you do change them, get this, it won't be for the good. Just like if, if God said, okay, for today, I'm going to make you where you decide how everything works today. The world would be worse at the end of the day. It wouldn't be better. God knows better. So when you have your, your, your spouse in a laboratory on how you need to change them, what they need to become, if you do change them, it's not for good. That's not the way you change them. You change them by loving God, which is often ignored. People come in for marriage counseling and they go immediately to tips about marriage. And listen, if you don't love God and care about His Word, then you're not going to make good lasting change. By loving God, but also by loving one another. The self-sacrificial love, the other-centeredness that you offer will be far more transformative and it will be change that's outside of your control for the good than anything that you think you could manipulate by yourself. In most cases, the best thing for you to tell yourself always is, I am the biggest problem in my marriage. Now listen, there's cases of abuse. There's cases of neglect and abandonment where that's, that's not the case. But in most cases... You saying, I'm going to work on me. And whether it's fact or not, I'm going to treat myself as the biggest problem in my marriage. And I'm going to ask, how can I self-sacrificially serve better than I am now? That's usually the healthiest way forward. You see, like all idols, marriage makes a terrible one. Marriage makes a terrible one. We've got to take marriage for what it is, a good gift of God to help us to grow into Christ's likeness. Not to leave us alone. Not to give us all the things that we dream for. But to grow us. To change us. And by definition, that means it's going to be difficult. But I, I was telling the marriage conference crew this, that I find that in marriage what happens is people have a problem and they fixate on the problem and they, they just can't seem to see beyond the problem, and they tend to say things like this. It should not be like this. If, if we're married, if we love one another, it shouldn't feel like this. We shouldn't have to go through this. Who says? Love can't be marked by suffering and pain. We are the people of the cross. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world, there was a crucifixion of the Son of God. Christians of all people, 
should never say, if this was really love, it wouldn't be difficult and it wouldn't hurt. What about if you flipped it and you realize this is the way it's supposed to be, right? You go to the gym to work out and you come home and you're sore and you go, well, that didn't work. I just worked out and I'm hurting. Working out doesn't work. But you don't do that. You say, it's supposed to hurt, and I'll keep after it, and it'll hurt less, and then I'll work harder, and it'll hurt more again. And that's the only way for me to grow is to feel some pain. That's the way marriage is. See, nobody lives this constant communal bliss with no difficulty. This is a lifelong spiritual, physical, emotional intimate, one-flesh, covenantal commitment before God and man to live together and to become your future selves. To be shaped in to what God is shaping you in toward glorification. Marriage challenges are a part of the point of marriage. They are not the problem. Marriage, like most things, needs grace. Marriages, like most things, need a community of grace. It's called the church. It's so sad when people have marriage problems and run away from the church. You need the church so desperately. You need the bride of Christ when your marriage is struggling desperately. We all struggle. We all sin. We all fall. But we've all got to keep turning back to Christ and His design. I do want to say one other thing. A part of the way God gets cosmic glory in this It's not just simply by the beautiful pictures and what seems to be the ideal marriage. There's there's a particular couple in this church who the first time I ever met them, they introduced themselves and, and they said, now listen, I want you to know we were divorced and it was wrong. And we didn't act right in our first marriage. And we regret it. And we've repented of it. But now we're married and we're going to try to do it right. And they're still together. And every time I see them, I think about that. Right? Repentance of sin. They, they, they didn't get bitter about marriage. They embraced God's design. And, and they're a constant joy to me when I see them together. And then there are others. There are uh, particular uh, ladies in this church whose husbands just walked out on them or did terrible things. And they did everything they could, even to the point of not getting some things, giving away some things to try to save their marriage. But they go to bed at night with a clear conscience that I didn't reject my marriage, somebody else did. And by the way, when somebody's trying to do the right thing, don't in the name of Jesus say you're being foolish, look out for yourself, try to take care of number one. I have to battle that a lot of times with people who are counseling. You never, ever will regret trying to honor God. So some of the greatest heroes in this church have experienced the terrible, devastating pain of divorce. And the singles in this church, praise God, we're all a part of this marching toward glory together. Some of the singles in this church use their freedom to sit with uh, families for nothing and not charge them for it, to free families up and 
so married people can have time together. You see, that's the way the church really works. It's not, but what about me? It's, but what about Christ? So, but what about how I can serve you? We're in this together. We're a family. This is not about a pretty little uh, idyllic picture, but, but it is this. Marriage provides you one of the most personal ways to experience the gospel that you could ever know on a day-to-day basis. It is definitely not a way for you to make much of yourself. And if you think it is, you will find out to the contrary very quickly. Marriage. Cosmic glory. Communal flourishing. Sanctifying companionship. The difficulty in all. It's a great gift from God that we ought to thank Him for on the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your many gifts. Thank you most of all for the gospel. The most important marriage that any of us are to think about is the fact that uh, we need to be a part of the bride of Christ. But Lord, we do thank you for this institution that whether the culture around us recognizes it or not, This community is better because of marriage. And Lord, as a church family, may we be a people who are are, are marked as those who celebrate and those who fight the good fight to try to bring you cosmic glory uh, in our earthly marriages. That, That we are to be a people that know this is always about more than us. It's about you. It's about the community. And it's about sanctification. May we never forget it. And may we thank you that all of us in Christ know the perfect groom and will be made ready. May we celebrate then with reckless abandon, pure grace and love and mercy. And until then, May we celebrate along the way. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.